Lord, thanks that every good thing we experience on life comes straight from your hand. Thanks that your will towards us is goodness and kindness continually. Lord, we want to give you the things that concern us, weighty responsibilities or smaller concerns. And as we do, I pray especially this morning that your spirit would be making real to us the value of knowing Christ, Lord, the benefit, both eternally and in time, of knowing Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. One of the dangers of teaching on a holiday like Easter is that you're almost bound to disappoint somebody who wants to hear, Stan, a particular kind of message. You know, an Easter message. Kidding, sort of. This will be a little different tack on Easter this morning, but I hope that the value or the benefit of it is such that it meets or exceeds expectation. Let me start this morning by reading to you a portion of an old document. This was put together September 22, 1862, and it was decreed for January 1st, 1863. If you know your history, you probably know where I'm going with this. This decree, this proclamation said, On the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward and forever, free. The executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. I'm not reading all of this, but I'm reading uh, some selected portions here. Abe continues, By virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free. I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense, and I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. Upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In witness thereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be fixed, done at the city of Washington this first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 87th, Abraham Lincoln. This, of course, is the Emancipation Proclamation, a very important defining moment, actually, in the United States history. Briefly, if you remember, Congress had not been able to pass a constitutional amendment for the freedom of slaves. Abraham Lincoln has more recently been criticized for not doing enough. The truth is, Abe did what he could, and when he said with the authority to do so, he made an executive order, the Emancipation Proclamation, related to freeing slaves in the southern states. He had the authority to enact. Later, Congress would pass the 13th Amendment, but this was what Abraham Lincoln could do to free slaves. Now, imagine living as a slave in Abe's day. A couple things could affect your appreciation of the Emancipation Proclamation. Let's just say that you're on a plantation or a part of the South, 
and you fail to hear this news. You fail to hear that the President of the United States, the official elected representative who had the authority to do so, had freed you. You never hear it. And so, of course, you derive no benefit. Legally, you're free. But practically, because you're ignorant of the proclamation, that freedom or the potential for freedom has no practical benefit to you. Or think of this too. You're a slave on a plantation. You hear the news of the Emancipation Proclamation, and you say something like this to yourself. You know, it's not great where I'm at, but it's a given. I know what it's like, and I'd rather stay on the plantation than exercise my freedom in an unknown world. In both cases, there would be the potential for freedom and benefit for liberty, but it wouldn't be appreciated. It wouldn't be experienced, some for ignorance and some willfully. But freedom's available if you know about it and if you care to exercise your option for it. The question kind of comes to mind, what good, along this line, what good is the sunshine if you're still living in a cave? What good is emancipation if you're still bound up on the plantation? Now, what does this have to do with Easter? We'll get there in a moment. Before we do, let me go over, kind of briefly, this is a bit of a hit, a hit list, I confess, but... Let me go over traditional information related to Easter. That is, what, what's Easter about anyway? You know, the resurrection is the defining moment in history, uh, I would argue, not just uh, Christian faith or religion. It's the defining moment in history. All of history before Christ looked forward to his coming. All of history since looks back to his defining moment, not just his incarnation, but his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. It defines history. Even if you read uh, scientific or academic articles today, they don't say A.D. Anno Domine in the year of our Lord, but they do use initials before the common era and something, I think, after the common era, which still are defined by Jesus Christ's presence on earth. And of course, the Easter message briefly is this, that mankind has a sin problem. Paul says it like this in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That simply means God is a holy God, can't partake, can't participate in anything that's less than holy, less than appropriate or proper. And we sin. Paul says, gosh, we all sin. Beyond that, Romans 6.23, this sin, the sinful condition that we all have and we inherit, and we practice and we do it, this sinful condition produces something. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That is, when we sin, it produces something. It's like planting a seed in the ground, and the fruit of sin is death. Paul doesn't stop there. He says in Romans 5.8, God sees our sinful condition. He sees what we get from our sinful condition, death, and he says, I'm going to do something about that. So Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love towards us, not because we were nice people, but in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 takes us even further and says that God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, the only person who's walked this planet who has not sinned, made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, there on the cross, bearing the penalty to our sins, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This amazing transformation is what Easter's about. Easter's not some separate uh, irrelevant occasion in history. Easter's about God ransoming, saving folks like 
you and me. That's the necessity of Easter. The necessity of resurrection comes from crucifixion and burial, comes from incarnation, comes from our sinful condition. Now this morning on Easter morning especially, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, that is if you've recognized that Jesus is God's provision for your salvation, if you've embraced Christ, that is if you've believed in him and trusted yourself to his care, Easter's a great Sunday to rejoice and say thanks. Because as a Christian, we know a few things. Many things we don't know, but a few things we know. Our sins are forgiven. This is no small thing. Our sins are forgiven, which means we're reunited with God. We should have, Christians should have the most vibrant, joyful lives on earth because we're now reconnected with the source of all life and goodness, God himself. And we've got this promise that we're going to spend eternity with Christ and the Father in heaven in glory and joy and peace. This is no small thing. This is good Easter. If you're a Christian, rejoice on Easter morning, resurrection morning. If you're not sure where you're at with the Lord, that is, if you don't know that there's been a time in your life in which you didn't know Christ, and then you did, Easter's a great day to say to Christ, I accept. You want eternal life? I'll take it. You want your sins forgiven? I do. Salvation is no harder for us. God proposes no higher hurdle to cross over than to simply say, Lord, I accept salvation freely offered in Christ. We don't bring anything to salvation. Salvation is first and foremost God's initiative on our behalf. So on Easter morning, if you're a Christian, rejoice. If you don't yet know Christ, let me invite you to say, yes, it's the best thing you'll ever do. I say, marrying my wife was the best thing I ever did next to becoming a Christian, only superseded by one thing. Becoming a Christian is the best thing you can ever do for yourself. So, on Easter morning, we remember the resurrection. Our sins are taken care of, and we rejoice in what Jesus Christ did for us. This is the key. We rejoice in what Jesus Christ did for us in paying the penalty due our sin. Christ did for us, related to the penalty due our sin. Now, If you're an honest Christian, you know that this is good, but it doesn't fully describe your life or mine, does it? And what I mean is something like this. You don't have to be a Christian very long, and you've rejoiced that you feel this lightness about your life. Maybe you feel a new joy you didn't feel before. Conversion probably looks a little different for all of us, but, but you know your life's different, and it's better than it was. But then pretty soon you realize that there's still a problem because even though the penalty of sin is taken care of, and you understand that, I'm going to heaven, there's still this problem with the power and the presence of sin in your life. And if we took a show of hands and I said, who here still sins? Every hand should go up, right? Because we all sin in many ways. And so... We might feel a little hypocritical on an Easter morning or any Sunday morning or any morning when on one hand we want to say thanks and we want to praise God for what he's done for us and on the other hand we recognize, but Lord, we're not what we ought to be. There's a sense in which we might say we're still like slaves on the plantation of sin and death and even though that proclamation's been made, we we don't always live like it. We, We don't always look like it. 
You might start out on a day or a week or a month in which you feel like everything's bright and rosy and life is good. And then you walk on down the road a little bit and suddenly you're, you're in the dark woods of sin and frustration again. Paul describes it like this. Romans 5.1 says, gosh, we've been justified by faith and now we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Life's good. But you march on down the road and you find yourself in Romans 7. Let me just highlight a little bit of Romans 7. Maybe you can appreciate, maybe you can identify with some of this. Paul says, uh, you know what I'm doing. This is a converted Paul speaking here. This is not a pagan who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have a new life within him. This is a Christian speaking. What I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. The wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good isn't. The flesh here, Paul's old sinful life, that nature of sin that he inherited from his father and his father all the way back to Adam. He says, the good that I wish, I don't do. I practice the very evil that I don't wish. I find the principle that evil, evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. I joyfully concur. I agree with the law of God in the inner man. That is, in that new nature I have from Christ, I understand what's good and right. And I joyfully concur with that. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner, a slave of sin, which is in my members. And he cries out in this experience, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am. This is a Christian speaking. Who will set me free from this body of sin and death? Now, all of us, I'm sure, experience this at some point. Wretched man that I am. This the variety of sin and the, the variety of ways we experience this is as numerous as we are. You know, for some of us, this looks like uh, a sharp, bitter tongue, unthoughtful, careless words or hurtful words. That is, we sin with our mouth. Or it could be a sense of greed. We always want more. We're never satisfied with what God's given us, materially or relationships or standing, whatever. This could be lust. It could be just the theater of the mind in which we engage in lustful thoughts. It could be abusing things. It could be abusing food. It could be abusing drink. It could be abusing drugs. I mean, it's as numerous as we are, the varieties of sins we fall into. But which one of us who who has thanked God that our sins have been dealt with related to the penalty through what Christ did for our sins hasn't cried out with Paul even on resurrection morning, wretched man that I am. I'm still bound up. I know I'm going to heaven. I know the penalty due my sins is taken care of, but I've got another problem. I've got sin in my own body that I capitulate to, and it makes me wretched. I'm sick about it. It's hard to sing resurrection songs when you're still with Lazarus wrapped up in that tomb. Or it's hard to sing Resurrection praise songs when you're still a slave on the plantation. Psalm 137 says this, When the Jews were in exile in Babylon, 
And the Jewish captors say, hey, give us some of those songs from back there in your home country in Zion. And they responded this, how can we sing the Lord's song when we're in a foreign land? How can we sing praise songs? How can we rightly give thanks? How can we appreciate Easter when we're still subject to this slavery, the power and the presence of sin? So my take on Easter morning, my offering to you for a perspective on Easter morning this morning, is to see Easter or Resurrection Sunday not just as a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for you in removing the penalty of sin, but seeing it as a declaration, a proclamation of emancipation related to the power and the presence, the influence of sin in your life and mine. Now, when Lincoln gave his Emancipation Proclamation, he had authority to do so as the commander-in-chief. It was a military order, actually. If you say, well, upon what is our Emancipation Proclamation based? That is, upon what authority, upon what basis does God give us this Emancipation Proclamation? It is not tied specifically to what Jesus did for us. It's tied to what he did with us. And Paul has something to say about this in Romans 6. Paul just asked the question, should we, we Christians, we have trusted in Christ, should we keep sinning? Is this a good thing? And this is Paul's argument to that. He says this, Romans 6, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and in the Greek, this is something like math. Do the math, tally it up. This is the conclusion. Knowing this, concluding this, That our old man, our old sinful nature, a nature which can do nothing but sin, our old sinful nature was crucified, past tense, with him. Why? So that our body of sin might be done away with or rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Romans 6 is the Christian's emancipation proclamation. It doesn't have to do with the, uh, excuse me, with the penalty of sin. It has to do with the power and the presence or the influence of sin. Paul says this a couple more times in Galatians 2.20. Paul says this, I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's not my old sinful life that's alive anymore. But it's Christ who's living in me. It's my new life I have from Christ that's at life and at work in my life now. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world and all its temptations to sin has been crucified to me and I've been crucified to it. 
Paul says the solution to our servitude on the plantation of sin and slavery is that we died with Christ. We died with Christ. When we say or when we think, Jesus died for me, that's absolutely essential. And what that has to do with is the penalty due our sin. Jesus died for me, takes care of the penalty due my sin, gives me heaven for eternity. No small thing, we'll take it. But it's I died with Christ. That is the emancipation proclamation that frees you and I from the power of sin in our lives. These are distinct. Most Christians, I would argue, don't know there's an emancipation proclamation. They're slaves on the plantation, and they haven't heard that there's a better way. The proclamation is here, but most of us live ignorant of it and therefore don't recognize the benefit Christ died to give us. So, on that first Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose from among the dead, when he conquered sin and death, when he rose, you rose with him. His victory over sin and death included you. It's your victory as well. Easter Sunday isn't just about what Jesus did for us, as important as that is. It's also about what he did with us. He took us with him. Paul concludes this in Romans 6, 10 and 11. The death he died, Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, related to the penalty due sin, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, theologically we call this substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ went absolutely by himself to the cross. By himself, he hung on the cross and paid the penalty due your sin and mine. Couldn't be otherwise. He was the only sinless person who's ever walked the earth. And a sinner can't atone for another sinner's deficiency. Only the sinless could die for a sinner. When Jesus died paying the penalty due our sin, he was absolutely alone on the cross. But, There's a flip side to that. Related to our new life, when he died on the cross, when he was buried, and when he rose, we were in him. We were with him. And this is a a quick rundown on huge theological concepts, and so there's no way to fully develop these at all. We're just skimming the tops here. But related to this, you know in Romans 5.1, it says death came through the world through what? One man. One man. And it says all of us didn't sin the same way Adam did, but we all get sin by virtue of being descendants from Adam. Why is that? Everybody says this doesn't sound fair. God sees it this way. You and I all trace directly, no matter what color you are, how tall you are, where you're born, we all trace our physical lineage to Adam and Eve. We all have the same ancestors physically. Adam and Eve had kids. Where did those kids come from? They came from their parents. Physically, they came from their parents. And in this sense, we can say, all of us here collectively, we were in Adam. 
We were in Eve in the garden. Not because we were born, but because we were part of them. Genetically, we're from Adam and Eve. And in that sense, we were in them when they sinned in the garden. So when Adam was there, we were there with him. In Hebrews, we're told that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, this sounds like a tangent, but it's not. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Aaron, Abraham's descendant, the high priest of Israel, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Why? Because Aaron was in his forefather, Abraham. I'm just getting to this point. We were in Adam when he sinned, and we derive our life from him, our first life, our natural life. As a Christian, one who has been born again with a new nature and a new life, you know where that new nature and that new life come from? Jesus Christ. We never go back more than one generation. Christians have no grandchildren, you guys know this. All of us derive our life from the same source, Jesus Christ. So just like we were in Adam in the garden when he sinned, because our life comes from Adam, spiritually your life and mine comes from Christ. And in that sense, we were with him when he died on the cross. And we were with him when he was buried in the tomb. And we were with him when he rose from the dead. And that is your emancipation proclamation from the power of sin. Not that Jesus died for me, he did. But I died with him. The question then becomes, gee, how do I appropriate this truth? What do I do to lay hold of this truth that I died with Christ so this sinful nature in me, these sinful tendencies don't have to rule my life? How do I get a hold of that? It's the same way you got a hold of salvation. It's not hard. It's not out of reach. The answer is one word. It's faith. It's belief. It's not working harder. It's not working smarter. It's not getting up earlier. It's faith. It's faith. Paul says this. He articulates this in Galatians. As I wind down, let me read you a quote from one of my favorite Christians. This is Watchman Nee. We've mentioned him in the past. Listen to the way Watchman Nee describes this and see if you don't recognize yourself in his description of a Christian's attempt to deal with sin. He says, God's way of deliverance is altogether different from man's way. Man's way is to try to suppress sin by seeking to overcome it. God's way is to remove the sinner. Many Christians mourn over their weakness, thinking that if only they were stronger, all would be well. The idea that because failure to lead a holy life is due to our impotence, our lack of strength, something more is therefore demanded of us. This leads naturally to this false conception of the way of deliverance. If we are preoccupied with the power of sin and with our inability to meet it, then we naturally conclude that to gain the victory over sin, we must have more power. If only I were stronger, we say, I could overcome my violent outbursts of temper. And so we plead with the Lord to strengthen us that we may exercise more self-control. I'm going to do it. I'll get better. I'll get stronger. But this is altogether wrong. This is not Christianity. This may be positive mental attitude, but it's not Christianity. 
God's means of delivering us from sin is not by making us stronger and stronger, but by making us weaker and weaker. This is surely a peculiar way of victory, you say, but it is the divine way. God sets us free from the dominion of sin, not by strengthening our old man, but by crucifying him. Not by helping him to do anything, but by removing him from the scene altogether. Which one of us here hasn't experienced this Romans 7, slave on the plantation experience, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. And I know what I shouldn't do, but boy, that's what I find myself doing. The secret to this kind of success in life on the earth, as long as we're here, we sin. Unfortunately, John says, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. For the Christian, sin should be the exception, though, not the rule. We will sin. We're going to sin on the earth in our life here. It's going to happen. But it should be the exception, not the rule. And the secret to this is no secret at all. It's that in Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection, you and I as Christians, all who trust in Him, were in Him and with Him then. And it's simply by accepting what's true, counting it up, recognizing the truth. Lord, I understand that you crucified my old sinful nature with Christ 2,000 years ago. I don't have to get better, smarter, stronger. I accept by faith, just as I did salvation itself, I accept by faith my emancipation proclamation from the power of sin. Lord, Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins and that I died with you. Thank you that you rose from the grave on my behalf and thank you that I rose with you. That is, in a sense, I would say, the secret of Easter. It's not just what Jesus did for us. It's what he did with us. Died for our sins and we died with him. I'm afraid that many of us look like Lazarus. Jesus has called out and he's given life to a corpse, but we're still wrapped up in that tomb. Or we're still slaves on the plantation because the freedom or the liberty we're called to, we've either not heard about or we've not exercised our option to walk off the plantation. This Easter, this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Most appropriate time to do so that I could think of. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, please join with us. And as you do this morning, as we take the elements, the bread and the juice, we remember what Jesus did for our sake. This is what he told us to do, Christians. Do this. It's a portrait of me. That bread, his body broken for us on the cross. The juice reminds us of his blood spilled on the cross for our behalf. He said, take these elements, do this, and remember what I did for you. But this morning, I simply want to add, when you're considering what Jesus did for you, remember this, throw this into your equation and into your thanks and say this to yourself this morning and tomorrow morning, Jesus, thanks that you not only died for me, but that I died with you. And that this Easter, I celebrate not only your resurrection from the dead, I celebrate my own emancipation proclamation. So we'll have the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Again, feel free to join with us. 
feel free to come up on your own schedule, take the elements, go back to your seat, take those when your heart's ready before the Lord. We'll have a song on for part of that period, and then we'll close and we'll worship together. And let's pray as we do. Father, there is no thought that unholy people like us could stand unaided in your holy presence. Father, thanks that salvation from first to last is what you did for us. Thanks that Easter Resurrection Sunday is about Jesus Christ conquering sin and death so that we could accept life. Father, thanks that beyond that, you took, graciously took us, that we were in Christ when he died. We were with Christ when he was buried. And his glorious resurrection was our victory to life as well. Father, help us more and more to appropriate by faith the freedom that Jesus Christ died to give us. We thank you that we have eternity, eternal life, joy, fullness, and glory to come in your presence. But Lord, help us to honor the resurrection of our Savior every day by living full, free, emancipated lives. In Jesus' name, amen.